Well, if you found your place there, Matthew chapter number one, Matthew chapter one. Uh, and we're going to begin in verse number 18 as we begin looking at Jesus, our Messiah, uh, over these next few Sundays. Uh, and so we begin today, <coughs> excuse me, here in Matthew chapter number one. And verse number 18, I realize we get into the Christmas season. Uh, these are all verses that we know well. It's easy to just kind of read them quickly and be done with the chore of the holiday season. Uh, and so, but let's not do that this morning. Let's pay close attention to the wording. There's so much that we miss when we rush through. Uh, we try to dig a little deeper here over these next few Sundays uh, and really understand what it is that Jesus did for us. Why is the birth of Christ so important, so valuable? Uh, and without his birth and the way that it took place, there would be no salvation. Uh, and so it's important that we understand that. So Matthew chapter 1 and beginning in verse number 18. And the Bible says here, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, <clears throat> when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And, he shall bring, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And I want to speak this morning on this thought as we look at Jesus, Messiah, the promise of Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you today again for the season, for the moment, for all that you've done for us. Thank you that our salvation uh, in, in earnest began in this moment. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not just accept you, but to appreciate what you provided for us. That we would not just look at you as a way to avoid eternal punishment but that we would see truly that you've given us an abundant life here if we would live it for you and in you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to make these things clear. I pray that you'd help us to come to a deeper understanding uh, of all that you provided when you came to this earth for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so when we look here and we talk about the term Messiah, and the term Messiah so often today is because of the popularity of the song Jesus Messiah that we sang this morning, uh, because of uh, the emphasis of Hanukkah and other holidays. And you see uh, the, the emphasis of Messiah where the Jews are still looking for their coming Messiah. Uh, and we understand the Bible explains to us that the Messiah for whom they search is Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord whom we worship. Uh, and so he is that Messiah that the Jews are still looking for today. Uh, and so 
When we understand uh, that concept that we have to look back when God gave us the promise. Now in our series on beginnings just a few weeks ago, uh, we, we stopped and paused there in Genesis uh, chapter 3, I believe, where God initially gave the promise of the Messiah uh, even from the garden. He did not name him, uh, but he did say to the serpent as he pronounced judgment that the seed of the woman, the virgin born son of the woman would crush your head. Uh, and so you'll bruise his heel, you'll wound him on a cross, but he's going to crush all that you stand for. Uh, the first promise of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we see that concept of Messiah from the very beginning there. Uh, and then we look at it uh, today and we look at it in the context of how it fits into what we accept culturally. Now, this is maybe an interesting fact. Uh, I don't know that it's that significant, but it was very interesting to me uh, when I looked up the word Messiah, which I typically break verses down when I'm preparing to preach and define uh, most every word that's in a verse. I don't always use or share all of that study, but uh, I try to define things. The first word that I looked up in concert with this series was Messiah. You realize the word Messiah, the name or the title Messiah only appears twice in all of the Bible. Uh, it's both times in Daniel chapter 9 when Daniel is giving uh, what we call prophetically the 70 weeks of prophecy uh, where he describes Israel's uh, it, what God was doing and would do up throughout all of all of human existence on this earth. Uh, and we see that in those 69 weeks that are fulfilled uh, and then the long gap that we're in now before the fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven, uh, seven, the 70th period of seven years is the way that uh, that plays out. And so we're waiting for that. That'll begin when Jesus returns. Uh, and he then institutes what the Jews are actually looking for. Uh, and so we look at this title and Messiah is that. It is a title. Uh, the word and the title actually uh, means by definition anointed one. Uh, and when you look at it more deeply, it means anointed prince. Jesus certainly is the anointed prince. In the New Testament, it says he is the only potentate, which is a specific and special prince or king. Uh, and so we see that, uh, that he is the anointed prince. It is the, of the, the anointed of the king of Israel. Uh, we'll see this morning how he's been promised the throne of David. Uh, and how God is, has preserved the lineage of David throughout the genealogies. Uh, we'll not look closely at the genealogies this morning, but uh, he's displayed them in the New Testament account of the birth of Christ so that we can trace that Jesus has a right to the throne of David, both from Joseph, his stepfather, uh, and from Mary, his mother. And so uh, on both sides of the family, legally, he is entitled to the throne uh, of David. And so when we also consider that the name Messiah, anointed one, means anointed of the high priest. Uh, Jesus is our high priest. The Bible tells us that he is uh, that high priest that's been given to us. And, uh, and we need to go to no priest for forgiveness of sin. We can go directly to Jesus, uh, that great high priest of our souls. And so uh, when we consider all of these things, Messiah, the anointed one, uh, we see that what the Jews here are looking for uh, is the 
the expected king of the Davidic line, whom Jesus is. Uh, they are looking for uh, one who would deliver Israel from foreign bondage and restore the glory of its golden age, which he still will do. But before he would do that, he was going to come and set us free from the bondage of our sin and restore us to the golden age of the time that the Lord created us in perfection in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and so that Messiah that would come uh, that is listed is Jesus. He is uh, the equivalent of the name Messiah or the title Messiah in the New Testament is Christ. Christ, uh, we refer to Jesus Christ. More appropriately, it's Jesus the Christ. Christ is not a name. We tend to think, especially uh, when we're young and, uh, and younger people think in terms of, well, it's just his first and his last name. So I always thought about it when I was a kid before I really learned anything about the Bible and it was just, you know, Jesus Christ, that's his first. No, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Uh, and that title means the anointed one or the Messiah. It means specifically the son of God. And so when we look at the name Jesus and the, and the title Christ, the title Christ, the word in Greek Christos means the anointed son of God. And we see that Jesus is not just man, but he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh, supernaturally conceived, not in the natural process. He came and put on human flesh that he might fulfill all that God has promised. When we look in the text here, we see again in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together. Espousal would most closely resemble in our time an engagement, but it had the legal ramifications of marriage uh, without living together and without the intimate aspects of marriage and the marriage relationship. They were not just engaged. They, by law, legally were married. To end the arrangement would have been recorded as a divorce, uh, as divorce would be recorded today, uh, most closely related. Uh, and so this was not just a light bond. This was not uh, an, an uneasy contract. Mary and Joseph were in fact in our way of looking at things legally tied to one another and it took a legal uh, a divorce to annul uh, that relationship. The Bible tells us before they came together, uh, before they consummated their relationship, uh, they were, uh, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. God uh, reiterates here the prophecy and we'll look at that a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, but he's laying out from the beginning uh, that there is something extraordinary about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this child uh, is conceived of the Holy Spirit supernaturally. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he was kind. He was uh, not willing to make a public example out of her to cause her to live in the shame uh, that their culture would have placed upon the dissolution of their marriage because of, or their betrothal, uh, because of her being with child. But while he thought on these things, he's still contemplating what to do. An angel comes to him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, here establishing his Davidic line, his right to the throne of David. Joseph, thou son of David. These are not just casual words. These are important aspects uh, of 
of the, the story of the birth of Christ. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Notice the name Jesus there uh, is in all capitals, uh, like Lord in the Old Testament and throughout the scripture, when it's Jehovah is, is translated there by the King James translators in all bold capital letters to signify to the reader that this is Jehovah God. That this is, not, uh, this is not a lesser name or title. That this is his prominent, premier, absolute, almighty name. This is God Almighty uh, in the flesh, Jesus. The name Jesus here by definition means Jehovah is salvation. And we look and understand that he is proclaiming and pronouncing that he, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jehovah is salvation. Without Jehovah, we have no salvation. Without Jesus born of the virgin in flesh, we have no worthy sacrifice to be offered to God in payment for our sin. We have no one that's been tempted in all points like and as we are and yet without sin. It is a necessary aspect uh, of what God has promised uh, as he promised us a savior. For he shall save his people from their sins. The Old Testament, or the, uh, excuse me, the first century historian, uh, Josephus, who uh, lived for <coughs> really not a lot of years, about 58, I think, maybe 60. Uh, he was born in AD 37. He is widely known uh, as one of the great historians of the first century. Described Jesus this way. Josephus, the famed Jewish historian, lived from AD 37 to 95. He seems to recover, or to record the death and resurrection of Jesus as a fact. Not as something that's hearsay. He records it as fact. In book 28, chapter 3, of page 3 of his Jewish antiquities, he wrote this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men, a teacher of such men as received the truth uh, with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. And my friends, 2,000 plus years later, they're not extinct to this day either. We're still here. He's still God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we consider here, that we have to realize that, that this Jehovah is salvation. Why is it so important, Pastor, that when we talk about the promise of the Messiah, why is it important that the Messiah was promised? Because God has laid out prophetically what exactly would transpire, and as it was fulfilled and historically and biblically preserved, it proves the authenticity of what Jesus is, who he is, uh, and what he came to do by 
by the, by the fact that what God proclaimed prior to its happening unfolded in exactly the manner in which God said that it would take place. Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, has come. He is the fulfiller of the promise of eternal life. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, it's, he speaks there in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God did not concoct a plan for man's salvation after man fell in the Garden of Eden. God knew before he ever created mankind that man would sin. And the plan was devised and the promise was given even before man was created and formed of the dust of the ground and breath was breathed into his nostrils uh, and he became a living soul. We look and we see this promise. What's so important about this? Number one this morning, consider that this is a necessary promise. It is not a promise that is uh, flippant. It is not a promise that is just nice to have. It is a promise uh, that is necessary. It had to be this way. It had to satisfy uh, a holy God. And we see, first of all, this morning, that it was necessary to, pro to fulfill, uh, the, to satisfy a holy God. Listen, <coughs> when, God, uh, when man sinned in the garden, God's holiness was, uh, was compromised. What God had set in place was broken. God didn't break it, man broke it. And when we look and we see what took place here, that God in his holiness could not abide in the presence of sinful man until resolution was brought about, until man could be restored back to the way in which he was created. Without the covering of an atonement, there was no relationship with God. And so God began to enact what he had to enact in order to bring creation back to the way that he formed it in the relationship with mankind. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 21, it says, For he, made, he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That God uh, looked at broken mankind and said, My holiness, my righteousness, my purity is broken by the sin of man. I am going to make Jesus Christ my son, man's sin, that I might pour out my wrath upon him and punish that sin so that man can be restored to me. That's what God promised when he promised us a Messiah. It was necessary to satisfy a holy God. Listen, my good works will never satisfy God's holiness. I can never measure up to all that God is. We look and we uh, want to be good people. We want to live good lives. We want to be thought highly of in our culture and society. But the reality is, is that their very best of men are still sinful. That no matter how good, no matter how uh, how. Uh, committed one might be uh, to living morally pure and to doing things in a way that are uh, that are helpful and uh, looking out for our fellow man and trying to uh, walk the straightest line that we possibly can walk and uh, not make uh, sinful acts and commit sinful deeds. No matter how successful we are, it's still not enough to measure up to the holiness of God. And thank God that in his wisdom and in his love for us, he did not demand that of us. He gave us the law that, that we could understand that no matter how hard we try, it'll never be enough. Because if man could look and say, I did this, then we could go to heaven bragging about how good we were. 
Rather than coming to the presence of God, realizing how depraved and destitute we are and how kind and wonderful and how loving he is in providing for us what we could never provide for ourselves, It is a necessary promise because it's necessary to satisfy the judgment and the justice and the holiness and the purity of a holy God. Secondly, it is necessary because it's necessary to restore the fallen without Without Christ, we could not be restored. God's justice had to be satisfied. But quite frankly, God's justice could be satisfied and man still be left to pay for his sin. But God didn't leave us alone. And in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That Jesus Christ will come. That Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt. That he will come and restore the, uh, this world to what God has promised that it would be as he fulfills that 70th week of Daniel. It is a necessary promise. Secondly, this morning, uh, we see that it's a noteworthy promise. <coughs> a noteworthy promise. Why noteworthy? Well, it's extraordinary in its announcement. It was noteworthy. The way that it was pronounced and announced that this is what's coming was extraordinary. When we look at the, at the events that are surrounding the birth of Christ, and I don't have time to read this whole uh, account, but jot down there Luke chapter 1 and verses 5 through 25. And you see the first annunciation of Christ as, J as John the Baptist is announced to Zacharias in the holy place. Zacharias, an older priest who has a wife named Elizabeth, who, is beyond, who are beyond the age of childbearing. It is, they are advanced in age to where it is impossible for them to conceive and bear a child. And as Zacharias goes to fulfill his role in the holy place within the temple, he goes in and he replaces the showbread and he, uh, and he uh, cares for uh, the incense on the altar of incense and he fills the oil in the lampstands and uh, conducts his duties there. Uh, he sees an angel. And the angel proclaims to him that he and Elizabeth will have a son. And when this son is born, you'll name him John. John, that's a significant name. We'll see that in just a moment. And the meaning of their names tell the story that God is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ because God has remembered what he's promised. When you look and you consider them, he goes into that uh, to the holy place and as the angel speaks, he, he argues that that's not possible and because he doesn't believe what the angel tells him, he is made mute and he will not utter another word until John the Baptist is born. He comes out of the holy place and the people see there uh, that clearly this priest has not had an ordinary experience within the holy place. That whatever took place in there, that whatever vision he saw was extraordinary in nature and he cannot tell us about it because he has been left mute. These are all significant events. He, for the time of the pregnancy, can say nothing and when John is born and they, uh, they muse about what they'll name the child, he for the first time speaks and says, no, his name is John. Why significant? And why is that important? Well, the name Zacharias, the priest who was made mute, means the Lord remembers. 
So when God spoke and he called to this specific priest, he is saying to us, I remember. What is it that he remembers? Elizabeth, John's wife's name, means the covenant of the Lord. And what God is proclaiming here after a period of 400 years of silence where no prophet prophesied, where uh, there was no revelation from God, it's a period that we would look at and say uh, this was a dark era in history, uh, much like the dark ages of medieval times where nothing is going on and, uh, and it seems as if it's just a, a 400 year pause in history where nothing is really recorded, especially biblically, and we, uh, we look and see that the first indication after 400 years of darkness, like 430 years of darkness in Egypt, whenever they waited for Moses the deliverer uh, to come, uh, whenever they look at all of this stuff, they see that the Lord is pronouncing as he makes Zacharias mute and Elizabeth to conceive a child that I remember my covenant. I have not forgotten what I promised. I have not forgotten what is necessary for mankind and why the importance of the name John, because the name John means by definition, the grace of God. My friends, this morning we come able to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior through faith because of the grace of God that caused God to remember his covenant and send his son to Calvary's cross to bear our sin that we might be forgiven and that we might live an abundant life. It is extraordinary in its announcement to Zacharias, but it is also extraordinary as it was announced to Mary. The events of going back to Zacharias just for a moment, there were foreshadowing signs that Christ was imminent in what experience, in the experience of Zacharias that the Israelites should have noticed. If you look and you, <coughs> they understand their teaching and what they learned and, uh, and what they were looking for in Messiah, they should have noticed, first of all, that a priest seeing a vision in the holy place during a public service is a sign from God. They should have noticed, secondly, that a priest becoming mute and remaining so until the birth of a son was extraordinary and a sign from God. They should have noticed that a barren couple beyond age bearing a child, bearing a son, was a noteworthy, miraculous event. It had not happened often. Uh, it happened for Abraham, uh, and it happened, uh, you know, maybe for maybe one other time. Uh, my mind slips a little bit here, uh, but it was not. It was a miraculous thing in and of itself in nature. It wasn't something that they would read about in the headlines of the paper on a regular basis. It was something that was extraordinary and unheard of. And it was something that they should have believed and understood that this is supernatural. This is a sign from God. And they should have noticed that upon coming of age, that that child going out into the wilderness and living on a diet of locusts and wild honey and proclaiming that the Messiah is here should have gotten their attention. But it didn't. Extraordinary in its announcement of John the Baptist was the renunciation of Christ. Secondly, it was extraordinary in its fulfillment of, uh, of or in its annunciation to Mary. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, and again, uh, there's sig greater significance than what we often draw out here. Uh, but in Luke chapter 1, 
as we look in verse number uh, verse number 26 through 38 and we'll not read all of that this morning uh, but the the angel comes to Mary and says to her fear not Mary for thou hast been found favor with God and behold thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus Notice again back in verse 28, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Notice that he didn't say, blessed art thou above women. There are some that would believe that Mary is perpetually a virgin and that uh, the four other children, sons, plus daughters, however many they had, uh, was simply cousins. Uh, but the word that's used means to share the womb. There's no way that they were cousins. Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, had a normal marriage relationship. Mary was not set aside uh, to be above women, but she was special among women. And she was uh, found to be <clears throat> worthy to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that she is blessed among women. And she then calls him my God and my Savior, uh, indicating and expressing that she understood from the very beginning uh, that uh, she too needed a savior. She did not look and think that she was above uh, the need. She understood uh, that he is my savior as well. So we look and see the third enunciation was the enunciation that we read to Joseph. Enunciating the purity of Mary as it was announced to him. And what you see is a miraculous birth of John the Baptist under extraordinary, miraculous, supernatural circumstances, the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ of the Holy Spirit and Mary, who was miraculous and supernatural in its nature, and then the miracle uh, of an angel coming to Joseph and, and relaying to him, you have nothing to fear about the purity and the faithfulness of your betrothed wife, Mary. She has been faithful and true to you, but she's also faithful and true to her God. It's extraordinary in its announcement. Secondly, it's extraordinary in its fulfillment of prophecy. There are a lot more verses here this morning that I've got time to go through. I'm going to throw a lot of references at you and let you go back and pick this up and study it for yourself if you'd like to. But for sake of time, we'll look at a few here and there, but we simply cannot look at them all. But it's extraordinary in its fulfillment of prophecy. It was prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. Again, in Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> And verse 20, uh, 22, uh, it said that a virgin shall bring forth a son, shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter number 7 in verse number 14, uh, as well as others, uh, where the Bible says uh, that, there, as he's telling that there's going to be a sign, Emmanuel, the virgin son, this great sign is going to come. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Prophesied. He would be born of a virgin. Not only that, he would be given the throne of his of David, uh, his father David. In Luke uh, chapter number one again, uh, in verse number thirty-two, I believe Luke chapter one and verse thirty-two is the name, as the angel announces to Mary, he says he shall be great and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, the Son of God, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. 
He is Messiah. He is the Savior. He will be the King. He is the high priest <coughs> that satisfies uh, the duties of the high priest for all of eternity. He would be uh, given that throne. It was promised in 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 through 12 and and indicated as Solomon was given his throne that it would never be removed. In Psalm 132, 11, it's referenced in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, and verses 6 and 7. Uh, we see again that he specifically says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this and God looks down and he has said that I am doing this in a way that I'm fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament scripture it was prophesied uh, in Daniel chapter 2 in verse number, uh, verse number 44, it was prophesied again uh, in, in, in Micah uh, chapter 4 in verse number 7, in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 14, in chapter 7 in verse 27. We see that his throne in those verses are described as being eternal. It's not a temporary throne. David would sit on the throne for 40 years. Solomon, for around the same time, other kings of Israel would inhabit the throne uh, for different amounts of time throughout their lifetimes. But the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ is established forever. It will never go away. He's on it as we speak. And he will sit on it in Jerusalem when he returns. His throne would be eternal he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. He is not a God that's distant. He is not a God that's a figment of imagination. He is not a God uh, that we uh, make statues and idols of. He is everywhere. He is within us. He is all that is and all that ever will be. He is with us. He came and he put on human flesh and he walked among us and he has experienced everything uh, that we experienced. John in his gospel as he described to us the deity uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and then chapter 1 uh, said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God in verse 1 and verse 14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh 100% God, 100% man, his throne eternal with us. We've seen this morning that this promise of Messiah was necessary. We've seen this morning that this promise of God is noteworthy. It is extraordinary in every way. Consider this morning that this promise of Messiah is never ending promise. It is a never ending promise. He did not promise and not fulfill. He did not promise and then take away. He has given us a promise that is eternal. That promise that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, our King, our great high priest 
is on his throne and he is working in the hearts and the lives of men today. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 and our text has said and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. It's never ending. Two thoughts about this this morning. It is a promise of everlasting life. He promised you everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave. And if you'll believe in him, you'll never perish. If I believe that Jesus Christ is God, if I believe that he was born of a virgin, if I believe through faith that he bore my sin upon Calvary's cross as God punished him for our sin, that he in that sinless life and in that substitutionary death cried out, it is finished, and descended into hell and led captivity captive, bringing forth with him the keys of death and hell and escorting those from Abraham's bosom into the presence of God, who would then three days later rise up out of that grave and manifest himself and show himself plainly to many and stood before a few hundred as he ascended back in their eyesight into the presence of Almighty God. If I believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, the Almighty, the sacrificial substitutionary uh, provider of my sin debt, payer of my sin debt, the one who rose from the grave victorious, and I will accept his pardon and receive him as my Lord and Savior, then I have a never-ending promise that I have been born again, a child of God, made a joint heir with Jesus Christ, not because I'm worthy, but because he is. And when I look and I understand the importance of Jesus, Messiah, he was the promised one. He has been promised not only to fulfill all the prophecy of scripture, he has been promised not only to provide everything that's necessary for the salvation of man, but he has promised us eternal life. Amen. Have you accepted him this morning? Or are you dependent upon yourself? Would you accept him this morning? Or would you risk dying sometime between now and the time that you do and spending an eternity in a lake of fire separated from him forever. Secondly, it was a promise of a never changing God. I'm glad that Jesus doesn't change. Listen, we live in a time of great change. We live in a time where morals have changed. In my lifetime, it's amazing what's considered to be moral today. People balk and get angry if you try to define biblically what morality is and what it means to have a moral lifestyle and to live a life uh, that's pleasing to God in that way, to have Christian values too. Uh, there are liberal lawmakers even now that the, uh, with a, a, an abortion case being argued this past week before the Supreme Court that want to revoke the tax exemption of status of churches uh, simply because we believe that God in the sanctity of life. 
Listen, it is a never-ending promise because he is a never-changing God. And they can change what Jesus looks like on the TV shows, and they can change how they define who he is in their writings and in their books, and they can change and, and what his expectations are uh, of mankind and the things that are written of man. But you cannot change the expectation. You cannot change the person. You cannot change the character. You cannot change the nature of the man and of the God, Jesus Christ, because he is never changing. He has never changed and he will never change. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, it tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not changed. You can try to redefine them. You can try to repackage them. You can try to rewrite what's necessary for salvation all you want to. But when we stand before God, all of the thoughts and all of the ideas and all the values of a godless society will be burned in the fires of judgment as we stand before a pure and holy God that says, you should not have listened to the culture. You should have listened to my word. Amen. It is a never ending promise. The promise of a never-changing God. The promise of life that is eternal. And it is a promise of a Messiah who is to be believed in. Do you believe him this morning? Everything that you experience in this life on a spiritual level will be summed up with that statement. Do I believe Jesus? If I believe him and I believe his word, then it will impact my values, it will impact how I live, it'll impact what I do, it'll impact who my friends are, it'll impact what my life looks like, it'll impact my career, it will impact every aspect of my life. Many say that they believe him and then they cast him aside and do what they want. If I believe him, I'll follow him. There are some people that I've stood and listened to, that I've worked around, that I've been around, that I've served with in military units, that I've been a part of, that I would look at different leaders at that aspect and say, I'm going to do what I have to do because of your rank or because of your role or because of your title. And there are others that I followed willingly and joyfully because I believed that they were the leader for the hour. My friends... If I truly believe that Jesus is the leader of the moment, the leader of eternity every moment, then I will follow him with joy and gladness. And whatever he calls on me to leave behind will be of no sacrifice because he has something greater for me to do. And he has something greater for you to do. Will you this morning accept the promise of Messiah? Will you believe in the one that God has established and sent as the savior of all humanity, who walks with us, Emmanuel, God with us, the anointed one from heaven, fulfilling his word and offering eternal life. If you would have it, he would give it.